Just a warning, this episode deals with the topic of domestic violence. If you need help, please call 1800 RESPECT NOW. And if you are ever in any danger, please call the police on triple zero. You're listening to Divorce Story, a podcast all about surviving and thriving after separation. My name is Annalise Dent. I haven't been separated. I was a child, now grown up, of divorced parents. And I'm Cass Thorburn. Over three years ago, I hit restart on my life when my relationship of 21 years ended. On the show today, we're talking about an issue that impacts one in four Australian women, domestic violence. When it comes to leaving, it's not always as easy as who gets what. If you're in an abusive relationship, often the time leading up to and just after leaving can be one of the most dangerous because often telling the abuser that the relationship is over can result in violence. So if you need to flee and you don't have financial independence, where can you go? We're joined by the CEO of Women's Community Shelters, Annabelle Daniels. Annabelle, on average in Australia, one woman is killed every week by a current or former partner. It feels like there's never been a more important time to talk about domestic violence. I completely agree. As someone who's who's worked in the sector for well and truly over a decade and, and around women's and children's issues for the greater part of my career, it's one of those things that we just can't afford to let slip on the agenda. And what's more, we can't continue to accept that the numbers of homicides will remain the same until we achieve gender equality. There are many more things that we can do in the meantime. If someone's listening to this and they're sort of wondering, you know, maybe, oh, look, my partner's only hit me once or twice or he doesn't hit me but he does yell at me, can we just sort of break down for people what is an abusive relationship? What do we say is unacceptable? Where, Where do we draw a line for someone who's maybe not sure about their relationship? Universal lines can be different, but some of the things that I think characterise abusive relationships, whether there are whether there is physical abuse or not, is that if you feel like you are walking on eggshells at home, mm-hmm. if you feel that you are unsafe around your partner, if you feel like you're going crazy and you can't doubt, that, you know, that you, you don't have a sense of truth in your recollections or the way that things have happened or that you focus all of your time and energy on thinking about what's wrong with the relationship and and how you can fix it. If you feel like you never, ever do anything right. And I think the, the line between emotional and psychological abuse and physical abuse is often blurrier than we think. One of the great experts in this field has been doing men's behavior change programs in the US for about 35 years. Mm. His name's Lundy Bancroft. And he says, look, if your partner has ever, you know, like blocked you in a doorway, stood over you, intimidated you in that way, even without laying a finger on you, he's already been physically violent. So, you know, sometimes it can be those subtler signs that people might overlook because there's never actually been a punch. Mm. And a home is supposed to be where, you know, anybody feels they're safest and where they feel that they can be themselves. If that's not the case, there's there's probably an issue. Yeah, absolutely. I would suggest, you know, reaching out to a safe and trusted friend or family member to talk about it if you're concerned about it. And there are also significant amounts of resources online now that you can access safely. Um, and also I highly recommend a book by Lundi Bancroft called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. It's It's been a brilliant resource and something I've shared with a number of, of women 
over my career. We know what physical violence looks like, but what does mm. emotional and psychological look like? Oh, look, um, there's there's a number of behaviours that can go into that. And, and one of the things, and I think this is another really important char- characteristic, is that, you know, when you have an argument in a relationship of, of equals, you know, it not everybody's reasonable all the time and, you know, sometimes people need time out and to cool off but generally you come back to it and there's some form of mutual understanding or way to, you know, to agree and go forward. And I think one of the different characteristics is that with abusive arguments they're never really solved and there's often a really ugly and chilled atmosphere that pervades after them for days. And so if you never really feel like you get resolution around arguments as you know, like a meeting of minds or equals or, you know, if it's about one partner winning at all costs, then, you know, those are some of the things that that should be red flags. Look, the other things I would say, you know, around the psychological and emotional abuse is somebody continually twisting your words, continually causing you to doubt your reality, continually being hurt by you or, or, you know, you're making you feel like you're, you're always unable to do the right thing or to say the right thing, those could be warning signs as well. When someone's in an abusive relationship, one of the things that holds them back is that, first of all, that they're, they're scared to leave because the most dangerous time of an abusive relationship can be after they actually make that decision to leave and the abuser finds out. With your shelters, what sort of – if someone's listening to this thinking, well, I'm not going to be safe, my kids aren't going to be safe, how how can they be safe during this time if they decide to go to a shelter? What sort of things are there to protect them? Oh, goodness me, yes. We do a great deal to protect people and I think one of the things – one of the things that's really important is is to note that, yes, this is a, a, a really scary time and the ability to, to leave, you know, a lot of people have very reasonable fears about it. Where will I live? Where will I go? Where, will there be somewhere safe for me? And the important thing is, is that there are safe places that are available and those include a range of supports. You know, there's, there's everything from technological safety, you know, to make sure that that devices are safe and people are not being tracked to the casework support because quite often people are, you know, looking down the barrel of becoming a single parent for the first time and may not realise what all of that entails. You know, there's assistance to walk alongside them and navigate all of the government bureaucracy that's required, like, you know, Centrelink, Medicare, housing, real estate, police, justice, you name it. That's what our caseworkers in shelters are actually there for. And so there is plenty of assistance around that. There's also really significant assistance in our shelters in supporting kids who've experienced trauma, either through directly being abused or through witnessing abuse on their mums. And it's really important that we recognise the impacts of domestic and family violence as child abuse um, and to provide kids with the support to recover from that. And so in our shelters, we have those specialist child support workers that work with kids to help them also. Does someone going into a shelter often just happens quickly or is it something that's well planned? 
there's a mixture of both of those things. Sometimes it happens as the result of an emergency incident. Um, if police have attended um, a domestic violence incident and have found that it's no longer safe for the woman to be at home, then she might be referred to a shelter that way. Whereas we've also had instances of women planning and waiting until a bed becomes available or until they've got, you know, everything together that they feel that they need to be safe in order to leave and then they'll come to a shelter then. I think people would also find it surprising to know that women's shelters are also, a lot of the capacity is women who actually are working. Absolutely, that's right. And certainly one of the things that we do support is for women who come to our shelters, if they haven't been able to access employment or they've had to leave their employment, is to help them regain that. Mm. Because obviously being able to find um, a financial stability as you're going through this and and having a supportive employer is one of the key steps that women can take to get back on their feet. If you've got access to financial support, then you can afford a rental, you can afford, you know, you can afford things for your kids, you can afford to plan a future as a parent and in leaving the violence. And about how long do people stay at, at the shelter? Um, around two to three months and and so, you know, there will always be people who have some stronger social supports to fall back on and so their their crisis might be shorter and we can assist them move through the process a lot quicker, whereas there might be others like those ones that you mentioned who have um, the more complex immigration or visa issues or complex family law issues who need to stay a little bit longer. And so the reality is, is that we provide the support that the woman and the, her kids need um, and that doesn't have a time limit on it. You know, we had a, a young mother who had come here on a spousal visa and she had um, a young girl who was about five and she had a baby boy who was nine months old mm. and she had come to the shelter because of a police incident um, and she'd basically been locked in the house for the last two years and right. you know, oh, her, her partner did not want to let her out and her you know and and so they sorted out her little girl to go to school, she hadn't been at school for a few weeks because um, because of the circumstances had been a bit, bit chaotic. And so the child support worker made sure she had the right uniform and she had a lunchbox and she had a school bag and she went to her new school on her first day and fitted straight in. Mm. And when, when we brought the mother into her room, we um, we do our rooms really beautifully, and they all have these lovely quilts. and And there was a there was a, a bag there which someone had put together as a present. And um, the woman ca- picked up the bag and came running back to the shelter manager and said, "Oh, somebody's left their handbag here." Mm. And the shelter manager said, "That's for you, hun. <laughs> you know, that's yours to keep." And she said, "Really?" She said, "I've never been allowed to have one." Oh my goodness. And and she pulled a crumpled $50 note out of her pocket and said, here, this is this is to help, you know, with, with supporting me. And, of course, we said, you don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we will, we are here to help you. And her little boy was really, you know, her baby boy was, was really thin and she'd had to put him on cow's milk because oh. her abuser had not let her buy the right formula that he needed because he said it was too expensive. Wow. So, you know, and that is the extent that some of these things 
can go to and, you know, really interfering with the mother's ability to parent her child. So, you know, as you can imagine, we did absolutely everything that she needed. Um, We provided support to get back on her feet and she's now moved through the shelter and she's in one of our transitional houses and she's getting back on her feet with her kids and, you know, and a life that holds much more promise than what she's just been through. I think as well something that we can do if if we know that a, a friend is in an abusive situation it's very much moved away thankfully from that 70s and 80s oh it's 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 their business and what goes on in their house is their business I think it's really important to to let people know that they have somewhere to go that they can come to you they can bring their kids if whatever it is that there's an open door policy that that, that you are going to be there to help and support them. You know, it's it's mm. remove the stigma and and make sure that people are aware that, that they they have friends, that they have a support system. Absolutely. No and I think the, the best thing the best thing that we can do as friends too is to just be persistent because, you know, and to just continually be there again and again and again. Because, you know, a um, abusive relationships can create situations that are like that are like a hostage situation mentally. You know, someone, it, Rosie Batty has described it as intimate terrorism, and I think that can be a really, that's a really great way of describing what it can be like to live as a, you know, like as a psychological captive. Yeah. And so, to think outside that and to be confronted by the fact that you might be in an abusive relationship is is an incredibly big step for someone to realise. Mm. And so, you know, it, it would it would not be uncommon for a friend to say, "No, look, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm." okay, you know, don't ask me, leave me alone, it's fine, I'm sorting it out. But I think the trick as a, as a friend is just just to continue to be there, regardless if she, you know, if she goes back or says she wants to leave and changes her mind, because it can take seven, eight, nine, ten times for someone to be able to get away. And having, you know, having a, having a consistent and supportive network is, is incredibly important, particularly one that that understands a bit of the nuance around this stuff. Annabelle, thank you so much for your time and, and, and sharing that information and your wisdom with us. And we appreciate so much what you're doing. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me on to talk about these issues. Thank you. Another thing that a lot of experts recommend when going through a divorce is mediation, because if your separation ends up going to court, you actually need to prove that you've been through mediation. So Cass, I don't think a lot of people would realise that even if they're in a really, uh, you know, a position where they can't communicate with their ex and they, they realise that they have to go to court because they can't talk about it, that people even have to prove they've already done mediation. And the whole thing about mediation is having a mediator. So yeah. whether you're on good terms or not great terms, the mediator's job is to allow you to at least have that conversation. You can't just, you know, decide that you're going to court. You need to try and work some things out. Yeah, if you can. And what I love and what I'm learning about is that whole idea of child-focused mediation. Yeah, well, mediation is not just for adults. It can also be incredibly important for children. We're joined now by Louise Elkington from Relationships Australia, who specialises in this field. So, Louise, when and why is family dispute resolution, which I understand used to be called mediation, recommended for parents? 
family dispute resolution is the term that's used in the Family Law Act. And in the field, we tend to use the words a little bit interchangeably. So a family mediator is called, you know, a legal term would be a family dispute resolution practitioner. And they are almost the same, but there is a difference, um, which I'll probably talk about a little bit later. But basically, mediators remain completely uninvested in whatever people are mediating about. So if it's a neighbourhood fence, for example, a mediator would not have a position about who's right or who's wrong. Family dispute resolution practitioners have to work in the shadow of the law is one way that we describe it. And that means that we have to ensure that parents make decisions in the best interests of the children. We have to ensure that they make decisions having thought about children's safety, having thought about children's well-being, their right to a relationship, meaningful relationship with both parents, where that's safe. Safety is the most important thing. So I will use the words interchangeably and we do in, in practice. And I guess to keep some emotion out of it because it sometimes, can. you know, you, yes, as parents, you know your children the best, but sometimes other emotions when you've separated can get involved. So this is an opportunity for that not to be the case? That's exactly right. The real skill set of mediators is to be able to facilitate a process, a safe space for people, in this case parents, to have discussions that are focused on on the issues rather than on the emotions that brought them into into the space. And the the issues are a child-focused arrangement, a child-focused agreement at the end of this. So absolutely, it, it can help people to just regulate their emotions and focus on what's really important here. Yeah. And what is child-focused mediation? So is that things like where do they sleep and how many nights do they have where? And is it things like I'll pay for daycare, you pay for shoes like is it that detailed is it everything it can, yes absolutely it, it can be all of that so the overarching philosophy about child focused mediation is that the mediator will continually be bringing the parents back to what's in the child's best interests how is this going to work for children what are your children going to think about these decisions is this going to raise the stress or reduce the stress for your children but what comes into the space, the mediation space, is what the parents want to bring into the mediation space. So often it is about arrangements. Um, you know, is it going to be better for them to, for a child or children to spend their um, weeknights with one parent because they're better able to get them to school and to after school activities? It's important for often or usually for parents to both have an opportunity to have weekend time, for example, you know, fun time. It's um, so, so parents, but, but we don't, as mediators, have a position about that. It's what parents think is important for their kids. So they might talk about who's going to pay for childcare, who's going to buy the soccer boots, what um, activity children are going to do, um, do you know what school. We often have parents coming in. Again, they might have sorted out a whole lot of parenting stuff when they first separated when children were younger. And we will meet them again when children are at the end of year five and or in year six and all the kids are talking about where they're going to go to school, high school and parents might have different views about that. So typically when we see parents a second time or third time when things change in, in children's lives. So the, the, the way that we keep it focused is to always bring the questions back to what does this mean for the children? It's a really important way, getting back to what you said um, before, 
it's a really important way f- to keep parents focused on what their real relationship with is with each other now. They, they know it, it's best. We always use the language of the other parent because if people refer to the other parent of their children as their ex, for example, mm. it keeps them in a space of all the anger and upset um, that happened around the separation. If they refer to the, the other parent as the other parent, it keeps them in the, the space that they legitimately should be interacting in. They're both the parents of these children and and it brings a more sort of respectful um, way to relate. Now, you talked about different mediation being carried out over different periods of the child's or children's lives. In the beginning, though, is there a duration that you think it's best to wait until things have calmed down a little bit so that there isn't so much emotion in it? Yeah. Our view or my view and and the view at Relationships Australia is that we we need to help people at any point along their life journey that they seek help. So sometimes we have people coming into the Family Relationship Centre saying, so a a first person, a party A, we might call them, Um, they come in and they might just want to have a conversation about whether or not their relationship is is at a point where they need, you know, they're thinking about leaving the other parent. There are children, there are lots of issues. What would they do? We would generally talk to that person about whether our service was the right one or whether relationship counselling might be the right service. We also often see people in those first tumultuous weeks after separation. You know, people will come, it's five weeks or four weeks since they separated or sometimes two weeks, you know, since they separated with a young child and they're absolutely reeling with with all of the uncertainty Mm. and, and the trauma really that goes with that. It's still worth them coming to see us because we can talk them through what help they could receive now that might get them to a point where they can have this discussion with the other parent. We would we would invite the other parent if we thought it was appropriate. And that first mediation might be around issues like who's going to move out of the house. A lot of people, particularly in Sydney, are separated under one roof. Who's going to move out of the house? How are we going to talk to the children about this separation? Um, what can we put in place in this really first um, awful few weeks that will keep things calmer for the children and give us both some space what other help can we access so at any stage we can we can help mm. how important is it to prioritize children in a separation it's absolutely crucial for children's outcome for children's good outcome to to prioritize their needs but also the time when parents are often least able to do it because it's such a difficult time for parents there's a loss of there's so much loss that happens at separation uh, loss of you know the family that you were planning the dreams you had loss of extended family financial loss loss of seeing your children all the time, which which you might have before. There's so many losses and so many um, reasons to feel completely out of kilter, I guess, you know, not feeling like you have any agency over, over your life. It's a really difficult time to prioritise your children's needs, but that's what parents always want to do. Mm. So we really encourage parents very strongly to get the help that they need for themselves so that they can then be available for their children. And actually, an analogy that we often use, which kind of resonates, is that, you know, when you're on a plane and they say, 
if there's a drop in cabin pressure, you know, you get the oxygen mask and they say for the adults, fit your own mask first and then fit your children's mask. And I can remember as a new parent thinking, oh, as if I'll do that. You know, I'm certainly going to save my child first, but obviously that won't work because, you know... You, you need to be you, okay And you might too. drop out before you can save your child. So yeah. it's the same kind of thing. We say, what what's in your oxygen, oxygen mask? What do you need for yourself so that you can be available for children? Because focusing on children is the absolute um, key to their well-being. Mm. I remember someone said to me, if you're not okay, how can your children be? That, and and right. it was such an important statement and turned everything around for me. Yeah. It really yeah. was the beginning of me sort of going, okay, that's so true. Like I was so focused on the children that I forgot to realise that it had to be, I have to be okay with it for them to be okay. That's right. And children are so intuitive that they will know that you're not okay Mm. and um, will try to do something about it, will take responsibility. And that's not what we as parents want at all, but they will try and take some responsibility to make mum or dad okay, to do what they have to do, say what they have to say, because they know intuitively that they need mum or dad to be okay. So it's it's a hugely important piece Yeah, and you can't us. fake it till you make it with kids. <laughs> that <laughs> really is not can't. a thing. No, yeah, really, you have yeah, absolutely not a thing. Yeah, children <laughs> will know. They know you better than anyone. So, Louise, what is child-inclusive practice? Well, child-inclusive practice is part of the mediation process and it's a way to, to answer some of those things we were talking about before about ensuring that we focus on children's needs. Where children are of school age, we can then have a child consultant come into the process and see the children. So that child consultant would spend some time with the parents initially, understanding a bit more about the parents' um, needs, the parents' view of what the future might look like, ideally, for the post-separation family. And then the child consultant would see the children um, individually. We see them for about an hour. We only see them once because it's not considered to be a therapeutic process for children. It's not therapy for children. We say it's incidentally therapeutic because children um, gain a very a very good sense from the child consultant and from the parents agreeing to this process that they matter enough to be included, they matter enough to be consulted, they gain a sense of, um, I guess, agency over, over their, their life, that, that what, what they think their experiences really matter. So as a child consultant, I would be looking to talk to children about what their experience is of life at the moment, um, what sorts of things make them happy? What kinds of things are difficult for them? How are things um, when when you go from one home to the other? Do they go from one home to the other? Any messages that they might have for mum or dad that if I could make a difference when I talk to mum and dad, what might make, make things um, easier for you? We never, ever ask children to make decisions and we never ask children to solve their parents' issues. Parents are the ones that need to take responsibility for working out what's going to happen post-separation, who's going to pay for what, what arrangements should be, all of that. But if they can be informed, if we can include the children's voice in that, then decisions are made with a lot more information. Mm. How wonderful. We're going to share all of the information uh, about Relationships Australia, how people can get in contact, website, phone number. That'll be in our show notes. Thank you so much, Louise, for taking the time to chat to us today. 
Today's divorce story comes from Alison. If you were to look at Alison a year ago, chances are you'd think she had the perfect life. A good husband, a great job, multiple properties and beautiful children. But like so many women, Alison was hiding a secret. She was in an abusive relationship and her story shows us that domestic violence really doesn't discriminate. Alison, tell us a bit about your relationship with your ex. I was early 20s. We did work together. He was in a a more senior position to me. Very kind from the get-go, welcoming into the environment. We had, you know, a, a love of food, wine, good friends, and built a really large group of mutual friends as as well as bringing in, you know, previous friendships from both sides. We both were really keen on having children relatively young and having the energy to to support a young family um, in that way. You know, so attentive, such um, an attentive, caring person that I met and, you know, someone that I still see, you know, those behaviours expressed towards others. When did things start to turn bad between the two of you? I think maybe, you know, as things shifted. So, you know, we, we talk about these power women in our 30s. My career took off. Um, the children got a little bit older. You know, I had a career that was, of you know, of equal stature, um, equal financial, you know, status as well. There was a dynamic shift in terms of... Um, what I needed potentially from from him and, and maybe his requirement to be needed. And so that nurturing and attentiveness um, shifted to control um, and anger. And how, how did he express that anger? What sort of things would he do? If I was outside of the house um, and not visible, then it was just constant, constant messages, long thesis messages, um, reflecting on conversations we'd had, reflecting on my inadequacies, reflecting on where I was, why I wasn't, um, you know, responding quickly enough. In his presence, it was stuff that was probably said in front of the children um, and stuff that, that the children could start to parrot. So, you know, if I was relaxing on the couch, I was lazy. If I didn't jump up to clean dishes within 30 seconds of finishing a meal, I was messy. Um, I couldn't do things. So, if I, you know, I, I never learnt to cook. So um, that was always an issue that, um, that I, you know, that I wasn't cooking, you know, at certain points or that I thought it was okay to get Uber Eats slightly more occasionally. Just generally, I think, you know, as I adapted into the adult that I became, that I am, you know, I wanted things to be really relaxed um, for, for the kids. Uh, and so you know, everyone had bedtime and there was routine, but there was just a lot of love and cuddles and singing and dancing. And that was, you know, the priority for me. Whereas I think maybe as he felt like he lost control of me, that order um, and routine piece became even more important. So any time that was questioned, there was also a lot of negative negative comments. Alison, when you say um, when he lost control, when did you realise that control was actually something 
that he had over you before all this happened? I think you fundamentally become a person that you don't want to be. So uh, if someone looks at you with such hate and disdain and makes comments to you about, you know, your inadequacies and how much they hate you, um, calls you names that you do, you know, prefer that you never heard in your life from anyone and you, you're not responding with the same rigour and passion that you are still managing daily to have for life, I think that's when you know that, that controls, um, com- controls the card that's being played because you're not being you. It wasn't, it wasn't me and I think that's the layer that the people around me um, couldn't see what was going on because I was still fronting up to work. I was still doing a good job. I was still present at, you know, in all the community forums um, for our children. Um, I, you know, and, and, you know, above and beyond, like team managers for sports and, you know, volunteering here, smiling everywhere, friendly to everyone, um, and then just wearing this unbearable weight of, you know, essentially, I'm not actually sure you even really like me anymore um, when you get home. It's how domestic violence is kind of recognised as being physical. But these days we are, you know, coming round to the great uh, to a great deal of emotional um, abuse that occurs. Did you confide in any of your friends or family? And what was their reaction like? So my family um, definitely recognised the behaviours, the moods and the treatment of me, but also just as the order needed to be maintained and control needed to be maintained. You could see it in his, you know, the discipline of the children and the routine um, of the kids. So they were definitely across it. In terms of friends, it's really interesting. So it was actually easier if people saw it themselves. You know, you'd be at a dinner party and he'd make a comment across the table or, um, you know, out with friends and he'd just say something really nasty. And often that led to conversations. In the times when I actually reached out to people or, you know, maybe had a couple of wines with girlfriends and, and opened up and they hadn't seen that or hadn't seen that, that you know, that utter look of hate in his eyes. Um, people just were, you know, the reaction was, oh, you know, he's such a great guy, you know, it'll be fine, you guys will work it out, you've got the perfect family, you know, it's all, you know, Pleasantville. Also, you know, I think it really challenges people as well um, from their own norm and their own white picket fence perfection to think that that can be going on. And I think ultimately when when you leave and when, when I did leave, even some of the people that had seen some of the behaviours that I've just discussed and were disp- displayed still found it much easier to turn their heads and, and, you know, potentially question the validity of my leaving. What was his reaction like when you ended the marriage? I know he went and sought help. Emotionally, I mean, he was uh, devastated but very in denial about it being the actual end. You know, I, I honestly felt like I was 
I was at risk and my children were at risk at points in the relationship. And I actually thought that that risk might increase if I left. So the decision was final for me. Thinking back to when you were still in the marriage, what advice would you give to a woman in that situation? I've been extremely privileged to be financially independent, to have been brought up in a a relationship with loving parents. I definitely see what what should be modelled. And I think for me the tipping point was what do we want our daughters to see as the norm and what do we want our sons to see as the norm? So how they expect to be treated and how they treat. Um, And I think that needs to give women strength. You need to talk to people. You need to write things down because there's also this tendency for people to question what you've said and for you to start questioning yourself if you're going mad in those scenarios. I'm truly concerned about what women in that position are supposed to do. I mean, it's worked out for me, um, but I don't... Who who can actually help you? I mean, we're looking at these... Um, all of the domestic violence orders that are just essentially just being ignored by, by crazy men um, now. I don't have the guidance, you know. You, you stay safe with a family that, that with families, they can protect you. If there's women's shelters, you do what you need to do. But we've got a long way to to be able to um, to say that we've we've got this covered. And I felt completely bewildered, and I feel otherwise extremely capable in my life. So seek the help where you can get it and and let's hope that you know our government can step up and make things better. Alison, thank you so much for for sharing your story with us. That was just um it was just really brave and so thanks so much for yeah, telling us about it. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. Annalise, we've heard how domestic violence as in the physical form in the 50s and 60s it was something you know it was a family problem turn a blind eye it's it's now sort of become the case when it comes to emotional physical violence is that a lot of people don't want to recognize it but it's certainly um at the forefront now isn't it yeah it really is and um one of the things that really just sent shivers down my spine was when she said that she had confided in friends and if they hadn't seen that behaviour at a dinner party, they hadn't witnessed it, they dismissed her and they said, oh, no, but he's such a great guy. Now that to me is what we can do first of all. Like, yes, governments need to help and step up but what we can do for our friends, if we see something, if someone confides in us, we don't question. Mm. We believe and we support and, and, and we bring them in and, and we cuddle them and, and we do everything that we can because for a friend to dismiss a claim about that in your relationship, it's just, it, it has to stop. And it could be as simple as just saying, what can I do to help? And, yeah. and, the, and, and the person I believe may say, you and, and I'm sorry yeah. and I hear you and, 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 and I'm the here pers- for you. And the person may just say, you know what, I don't want you to do anything. I just, you know, needed to tell someone. And that, you know, that that's a position that you know you've been confided in is actually a very special place for someone to put you in that position and they need to be believed and they need to be heard that's what we can do for domestic violence and family violence 
Should you find yourself in a situation where you need to leave, call 1800 Respect Now or if you're in any danger, call the police on triple zero. If you want to hear more from us, follow us on socials at Cass Thorburn and at Annalise Dent. And Divorce Story is produced by me, Annalise Dent. And me, Cass Thorburn. The executive producer is Eliza Ratliff. If you have any questions or feedback for us, email podcast at pacificmags.com.au.